All right. Let's close in prayer. No, just kidding. I know that was kind of a long video, but I think it did a really good job of giving you an overview of the book of Judges. Um, And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be in the book of Judges looking at some of the stories and some of the themes that are in the book of Judges to try and help us understand what we can learn from this book. There's a reason God included it in his word. And so we're going to look at that. Um, Who's ready to get back out into society and do normal stuff? I've said this several times before. I have not changed my routine much at all, um, except for the fact that I can't go out to eat because all of the restaurants were closed. And now that they're open, I still can't go out to eat because I'm on this cleanse. Um, The bad news is I can't go out to eat. The good news is I actually lost almost 20 pounds in the last 15 days. Um, Now, I know some of you guys are going, where did, where, you had 20 pounds to lose? P- believe me, I did. Um, but when we get out and about, is our life going to look the same? When we actually get back out into society and we're doing uh, most things normal, are they going to look the same? Probably not. I know I have seen, as I've been out, people doing some, some very interesting things. You know, I think you should protect yourself and protect other people. All right, but some people's idea of how to protect themselves and other people doesn't make sense to me. So let me give you an example. Um, I didn't see this in person, but I saw a picture of it. And it is a woman who is at the checkout line, and she's paying for her, her stuff. She has a cart, and she's paying for her stuff, and she has a little baby in the cart. She's wearing a mask. And she's wearing gloves, and her little baby is sucking on the handle of the cart. Okay? I just don't get that. Now, maybe she's oblivious. Maybe she thinks she's doing But what she, what she is really thinking is she thinks she's doing something right. She's protecting herself, but not realizing that when she gets home, if, if that cart handle had any type of virus on it, baby's going to get it, and the baby's going to pass it on to her. Her idea of what was right was lacking. Um, I also uh, saw somebody who out and about who was um, wearing a mask and wearing gloves. Um, And she is putting all her stuff in the cart to pay for it. She I mean, got her gloves and her mask on, and she's moving all the stuff around, moving all the stuff around, moving all the stuff around. Um, <clears throat> she, she, she gets to paying for the food, or for the, the stuff in, in her cart, and she goes, she reaches in her wallet, and she can't, with her gloves on, she can't quite get what she needs out of her wallet. So she takes her gloves off, reaches into her wallet, gets everything she needs, pays for everything, starts putting everything back in the cart. Halfway through, she realizes, oh, I still have my gloves on. I I don't have my gloves on. So she puts her gloves on and finishes the job and then takes her mask off and rubs her mouth. I'm just standing back. There's not very much. I do not get surprised by much 
But I was in just disbelief. Now, again, I think it, she really believed that she was doing what was right. Problem is, is that what was right did not align with what she believed was right. That's a powerful, that's a powerful illustration in how we should live our lives for God. And we're going to look at a, a story um, in, in, in Judges about, or uh, really not just a, not a story, but an idea in Judges that will tell us exactly what will help us in not only thinking we are right, but actually living right. So let's go, let's go through and real quick review. We're, we're going through the Bible. We've, we've done the, the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible and, and Joshua. And here's what we've learned. Genesis is God bringing, uh, God's beginning work of creation and the beginning work of redemption through Abraham's family. Exodus is about God's deliverance of the Hebrews from Egypt and his covenant with them on Mount Sinai. Exodus, uh, Leviticus is about God's instruction on how to live in God's presence. Numbers is about God leading the, the Israelites through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land. And Deuteronomy is a, a series of messages that Moses is speaking to the Israelites about before they go into promised land. Before his death, because he doesn't get to go into promised land. And then the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about um, Joshua and how uh, Joshua is about the Israelites conquering the promised land and making it their land. Now, we get into Judges, and um, as you saw in the video, things go spiraling downward fast. I mean, it's fast. It doesn't take long for them to completely abandon the God that they have been serving and start worshiping foreign gods. Joshua, um, <clears throat> I mean, the book of Judges is, nobody knows for sure who wrote the book of Judges. But tradition says that Samuel wrote the book of Judges, the prophet. Samuel wrote the, the, the book of Judges. And the reason they say that is because of when they believe Judges was written. It was written right after the monarch started. So right after the kings started ruling is when uh, the book was written. And they do that because of the verse at the end that was there. Um, in that time, Israel had no king. So, uh, so they... They, they take that statement to, the, to assume that whoever was written it was written under kingship. And so, um, now, it's early on in the monarch. So, the, the latest that we would really say that it was, um, uh, it was written would be the early part of King David. So, it was written somewhere between King Saul and the early part of King David's rule. That is why they say Samuel is the author. Now, we saw that it's divided into three. There's an epilogue, the beginning. There's the main uh, part of um, Judges that tells the stories of the, the Judges. And then there's the, the epilogue, which is the end. And while he, they said that there were two stories, there's actually three stories in the end. Two of them are, the, are, are um, prominent stories, and one of them is, is not so prominent, so they probably didn't touch on that. 
But there's something we need to understand when we are reading and looking at the book of Judges. Okay? Um, it is not one continuous chronological story. If you start reading Judges from chapter 1 and read through to the end, you will get a little confused because it, it is not chronological altogether. The first two chapters and the last four chapters are set aside apart from the chronology of the main text. So all of the Judges you read about in, in chapters 3 through 16, um, all of those Judges are in chronological order. But the two ends are not part of that chronological order. They are written from the perspective of Samuel because he's trying to get the, the audience to understand something. And that is that if we do things our own way and not submit ourselves to God, it ends in disaster. Now, side note, the book of Ruth. Um, we're going to be looking at the book of Ruth uh, after this series or maybe the next series we'll look at the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is actually written somewhere in the beginning of the chronological order of the book of Judges. A lot of people don't realize that, but that's when it took place. So, um, you know, understanding a lot of these things helps us in being able to understand the scripture as a whole. Now, I want to, I want to read something out of Judges chapter 2 through, through 5, which I can't kind of summarizes the first part, the, 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 the uh, prologue of Judges. Judges chapter 2, 1 through 5 says this. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into the land that I swore to give your ancestors, and I said I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in the land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. When the angel of the Lord finished speaking all of the, all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they called the place Vulcan, which means weeping, and they offered sacrifices there to God. Their inability or their, their uh, undesire to push all of the Canaanites out of the land led to the Canaanites being a thorn in their flesh. Have you ever had a splinter? And I'm not talking about a wood splinter because wood splinters are a little manageable. I'm talking about those really small, thin metal splinters. And when they get stuck in your finger or your toe, first of all, they're hard to get out. Second of all, sometimes you don't know they're there. But they're there. And if, if you just, all you have to do is bump it. And shooting pain runs through your finger and, and down your arm. That is kind of what it's like, what it was like with the Israelites. It, it's a constant, it was a constant pain, but they allowed themselves to ignore it. And we do the same thing. We allow things in our lives that, that 
will be a thorn in our flesh if we don't remove it. It will be a splinter in our finger if we don't remove it. But sometimes it's easier for us to ignore the pain every once in a while than it is to actually remove the splinter. There are certain places where I get splinters that, um, that I have to have my wife remove from me. And she does not like removing splinters, especially if it's down beneath the skin and you actually have to cut the skin back to get it out. She, does not, she will not do that. So I can't, I mean, I'm like, can't see what I'm doing and uh, I'm cutting my arm open because I can't see what I'm doing because she doesn't want to pull the splinter out for me. I think she's at the point now that she's, she loves me enough now that she'll actually dig into my skin. I told her, listen, I don't care how much it hurts. It can't hurt as much as it being in there. And so she digs them out. But if we don't remove the splinters in our spiritual life, if we just, just ignore them or, or, or let the area grow numb, in the end, it will lead to disaster just like it did with the Israelites. So, and that kind of summarizes the prologue. The Israelites did wrong. God confronted them about it. And they fell down in worship. But we just know that that is human nature, right? You know, if you really have a heart for God and, and, and you do something wrong and he lets you know, you want to resolve it. And they did. The problem is, is their, their commitment was fickle. I like that word, fickle. Couldn't tell you really what it means, but it, it's a cool word anyway. It's fickle. It's, it doesn't have a lot of substance. It's wishy-washy. That's another one, wishy-washy. It could change at any moment. And, and if we live our life like that, no wonder we don't have continual peace in our life. Well, part of the time we're going to do what God says, and part of the time we're going to do what we think is right, and then, he, then we're going to go back to doing what God says, and then we're going to start doing what we think is right. No wonder if people are confused. That's the prologue. Then you get to the, the, the main body. And this is just a cycle of Israel's rebellion, God's redemption, and then their rebellion. They rebel, then they get handed over to their enemies, and they get oppressed, and then they cry out to God, and, and, and God saves them, and then they have peace, and then they get comfortable it's a dangerous thing, not just in the, in, in the story, but in our spiritual lives. When we just get comfortable with our spiritual life, it's a dangerous thing. Not content. I'm not talking about being content. We are called to be content. We were never called to be comfortable. And when we become comfortable, we allow things in our lives, just like the Israelites did, in our lives that are going to they're going to pull us away from our faith and then we get back to being rebellious again start doing what we want that's the cycle and you read about it time and time and time and time again then at the end there are three stories that that really describe 
And again, these stories did not happen after, really after all of the, the judges ruled. These stories were actually happening in the midst of the rule of the judges. It's only at the end because the author, Samuel, is trying to highlight the severity of the sinfulness of the Israelites and how bad it really got. And as they said in the video, it is not for the faint of heart. Because if you sit and you read and you think about what you're reading, you realize this is pretty gruesome. I mean, a man cuts up a dead woman into 12 parts and sends it out to the, to the 12 nations of Israel. If that isn't gruesome, I don't know what is. But it was showing... It was showing the Israelites how bad Israel had really gotten. And it ends, it ends the, the whole book ends with this line, Judges 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. I started out this talking at this mess in this message about people's failed attempt to protect themselves with masks and they were doing what was right in their own eyes. But what they were doing was damaging themselves, making themselves not damaging themselves, making themselves open to be to catch this virus. The exact opposite of what they're trying to do. And spiritually, we can get that way. Spiritually, we can get to where we're doing things and we think we're doing the right thing. We think we're being godly people. We're doing the right thing. But in reality, if we were to step back out of our lives and take a look at it, it'd be just like that lady who had her little girl sucking, sucking on the handle of the cart. When we step back and look, we realize, oh, wait a minute. I wasn't exactly doing, doing it the right way, was I? There are two ideas in this, in this verse that I want to look at that apply to us. The first one is that you cannot rely on yourself to determine what is right and wrong. You cannot rely on yourself to determine what is right and wrong. We are all subject to our internal perspectives about external evidence. Let me repay, re, re, say that again so you understand. We all, we all are subject to our internal perspectives about external evidence. So let me, let me, let me give you an illustration. Internal perspective, how I see things. What defines how I see things is based on um, how my experiences and my beliefs. My experiences kind of show me, uh, um, teach me how to think and the way that I think. And, and your belief is a, a, is a set of boundaries to hold within that way of thinking. Okay, so my internal perspective sways the evidence 
not does it not make some, but they 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 sway the way evidence is presented to me because of my experiences. And it's because we are all faulty and we don't see things. The, the old saying, there, there, are th- there, are three, um, there are three ways. There's, there's, okay, let me get back to this. There's what he says is true, what she says is true, and what really is true. That's the best way of describing it. Okay? When I do, when I do marriage enrichment, one of, the, one of the things I have to get people to understand is that men and women don't see things the same way. Rarely do they see things. That old men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Listen, guy's a genius. I could, I, could, I could do something, and in my attempts, and I did this recently, in my attempt to show my wife and tell my wife that I love her, failed miserably. Because it came back and she understood it that I was complaining about something. How in the world did she get that? I was telling her I loved her. The way we see things, the way you see things, most of the time is going to be wrong. Or at the very least, skewed. Eli is a perfect example. He's learned his colors. But there are some colors that he still doesn't quite, quite get. So sometimes he'll call white black and black white, which I guess is normal. I guess I, I, I read somewhere that that's pretty normal for kids to do that. He used to call yellow green or green yellow, one or the other. But here's the funny thing. He knows the difference between light gray and dark gray. He wanted to put a, some, a Lego thing together. Um, I love my in-laws, but it was for five and, and older. And I have a four-year-old. Four-year-old, I don't know, maybe they get, at five years old, they get more patient. But he can't put it together, so I have to put it together for him. But I want him to help. So I want him to pick, I'm telling him, here, I need a gray one with, that's uh, eight. So you know Legos have the little things on the top of them. I need one that's gray and eight. And he will be looking and looking. I can't find it. I said, I can see it. Go ahead and look. He's looking and looking and looking. I can't find it. I said, Eli, I want you to just touch each piece until you find it. And you, that's a mistake. Because he feels the need to pick it up and throw it over here and pick the next one up. And He could tell the difference between light gray and dark gray, but he had a hard time w- with black and white. And it's just because his mind hasn't developed yet to where it needs to be. Or he forgets. Now pretend that we are the children and God is the one that's trying to teach us. Because the span between God and me is a lot bigger than the span between me and Eli. He's sitting back saying... You think you're doing what's right. You think you're doing the correct thing, but it's only right in your own eyes. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. 
Listen, if you rely on yourself and, and your way of thinking, it will lead to death. Maybe not physical death, but it will eventually lead to spiritual death. We have to have a different way of judging right and wrong than just what we believe. There's a, there's a, it's not new anymore, um, but there's a, there's a, uh, truth has become relative with, with the, with the, um, postmodernism comes the idea that truth is relative. What's true for you is true for you, but it's not true for me. So if having abortion is murder to you, that's truth for you. But I don't see it that way, so it's not true for me. So for me, having abortion is not a big deal. And we've taken truth and we've ripped it apart to where it is no longer a universal truth, which is God's truth. God says it, therefore it is. It becomes true only to the individual. And this is where our country is so divided. Because we have people who believe that what they're doing is right. That what they're doing is true. They're following the truth. When in actuality, some of them are actually following a lie. Because... They are living off of what they think is right. Now, for the Israelites, it's not only what they think is right, it was what they think is holy. They knew they had to be holy. They were, they were thinking that the evil they were doing was right. We live in that same world. Just not, it's not the Israelites, it's just people in our society who are doing what they think is right, when in actuality, it is evil. Now, we have to be careful, though. If any of you have confronted your friends about what they are doing being evil, they'll call you um, a religious freak, a nut. Don't put your convictions out on me. I don't believe what you believe. It's not going to be, you are never going to change somebody's um, attitude or actions by convincing, just convincing them they are wrong. Because it's easy to convince somebody that they're wrong. It's much harder for them to live a changed life. And so when, when, we, when we deal with people, we don't, even if they're doing something wrong, we don't, you don't just go out and say, oh, you're doing something wrong. Shame on you. God's going to get you. It has to be a change in the heart. You cannot legislate holiness. I've said that before, and it's really simple. You can't, you can't make laws to make people holy. It does not work. People, get, people are made holy, and when they're made holy, then the laws will follow. That's where we're at as, as Christians, as people who love God and who try to do what God wants them to do. We see all these laws being passed that are anti-Christian. 
Well, we shouldn't expect anything other than that because we live in a, a society that is seeing wrong as right and right as wrong. You cannot rely on yourself to determine what is right and what is wrong. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with just believing the Bible is right or knowing that the Bible is right. I remember a um, bumper sticker used to say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I, had a, I took offense at that. Because you want know, to be honest with you? It doesn't matter what you believe. Truth is truth whether you believe it or not. God said it, that settles it. Now it's great that you believe it. But in reality, it's about what God has said and not about what you had, have believed. Knowing is not enough. We have to actually walk in what we know. Psalms 119.105. Some of you probably could, could quote this. Your word is a lamp and a light. Your word is a lamp unto me. You want to know what's right. You want to make sure you're going in the right direction. You're doing the right thing. It is God's word that is going to lead you there. That is why it's so important to know and understand what God's word says. There's a uh, Matthew seven twenty four. 27 says this, anyone who listens to my teaching, Jesus is speaking here, and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes and the torrents and the floodwaters rise and the wind beats against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teachings and doesn't obey is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. It's pretty, pretty simple. You hear God's word, and you put it into practice, and you're building on a solid foundation. You hear God's word, and you don't. I don't care how many times you hear God's word. If you don't put it into practice, you're living in a cardboard box. When I was growing up, I had a neighbor who, um, who built a fort and it was the coolest thing in the world, this fort was. It was made of cardboard, though. We would go inside, and we would have a lot of fun. But you know what? My neighbor on the other side decided that they wanted to build a fort, too. But they were smarter. They didn't use cardboard. They used wood. A couple days later, we had a severe rain. We didn't go inside the cardboard fort anymore. Because it wasn't there. When you, when, when you build your life on a solid foundation, when, when you adhere to the words of God, there is nothing that can come that can persuade you it is not true. Paul talks about this when he, when he talks about them being swayed by the, the winds of teachings 
we have to, the only way that we are going to be able to stand in the society in which we live in and hold on to the values, the godly values that God puts in our life is that we build it on a solid foundation. And a solid foundation is not knowing, it is doing. Too many people can quote a lot of scripture, but don't live up to it. So, we can't, we can't rely on our own ideas about what is right and what is wrong. We have to rely on God's word. How do we make that a part of our life? How do we do that? Well, one of the things um, the judges was, showed us, the book of Judges, when you read it, something that you will find is that every one of the judges that came and delivered Israel did it by the power of God. It wasn't just somebody, oh, I think I'm going to do something good for God today. It was by the power of God that they rose up and were able to defeat their enemies. And when we get into, when we get in, as we continue in the series and get into our next series, we're going to realize what Israel really wanted was a king. What they really wanted was a king. They wanted somebody who would be their their ruler, they wanted somebody to rule over them. The problem is, is that they had somebody to rule over them. They just didn't accept it. God, was, God wanted to be their king. And yet they chose to do their own thing. And you will find when we get into the, the book of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, when we're talking about that, you're going to find that just because they had a king didn't mean they did what God wanted them to do. They still went their own way. The idea isn't necessarily having a king, but realizing who the king is. And the big fight isn't knowing, I think everybody in this room and maybe even most of the people listening online, your, 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 your biggest fight isn't knowing who the king is or who to follow. Your biggest fight is keeping the king where he belongs. Keeping Jesus as king of our lives is a continual faith fight. Keeping the king... Keeping Jesus as king of our lives is a continual faith fight. Just like the Israelites had the, went through a cycle. They went through cycles of where they were doing good and God gave them rest and then they would, they would fall away and God would let them be delivered into their enemies and then they would cry out. And then the same way that they, they have a cycle that they go through, if we don't keep Jesus in perspective, of where he belongs, we will fall into that cycle. If Jesus doesn't remain the king and we start doing things on our own, making our own decisions, and we've already talked about we know that we can't make right decisions all the time. If we left up to us, we'd do wrong. 
we rely on Jesus, we keep him the focus, keep him the center of our lives, and we can avoid the, the cycle that inevitably leads to heartbreak and trouble. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that you won't have trouble in your life. Jesus said, if you're my follower, you're going to have trouble. People are going to hate you. You know, and while earlier in our nation, people weren't very offensive, offended by Jesus in society today, you get the word out, you talk to a lot of people, you'll find out that some people are offended that you're a Christian. In fact, I had a wit golfing, and this was about a year, year and a half, maybe two years ago. Had been two years ago because I we hadn't moved here yet. But I went golfing, and I had a guy. We were about to tee off on the first hole, and I got grouped up. Me and my buddy got grouped up with another couple, and um, we were about to tee off. He found out that I was a pastor, and he did not want to golf with me because he was offended because of my religious. I don't know. Maybe he felt guilty. I don't know what it was. That is the kind of the world we're living in. And, and when, we, when we keep Jesus centered, it's not that we won't have those kind of troubles. It's that those troubles won't be a burden for us. While Jesus didn't promise to remove our trouble, he did promise to carry our burdens. So how do we, what is this faith fight that we are, we are on, keeping, keeping Jesus as king? What is this faith fight? Well, first thing we need to realize is that this is not a battle of intellectual strategy or physical strength. It is a spiritual fight. This is not about how smart you can strategize or about how big your muscles are. This is about who is stronger spiritually. God, God has been faithful to the Israelites continually, even when they don't did deserve it. Some people think the judges was God was being harsh on the Israelites by letting other nations come in and rule them. But that wasn't the case. Actually, if anything, God was even more gracious than normal, more willing to bless them more. Because every time they rebelled against him and cried out, he would answer by delivering a judge to deliver them. It was God's love that kept them, not his anger. They chose to pull away from God. But he was right there when they wanted to come back to him and cry out for help. He was right there to provide a deliverer. Judges is not just about the Israelites doing terrible things. It's about God's continual faith and love for his people. That's what, that's what I get when I read Judges, is God is continually fighting for his people continually loving his people, continually working to deliver his people. And he hasn't stopped yet. Even though we're 3,000 years removed 
from these stories, it hasn't stopped yet. But because it is, a, it, because it is God fighting, it is a spiritual fight, not a physical one. And God showed this from the very beginning. If, when we read about the Israelites in uh, Joshua, God was the one who was doing the fighting. God, in, in some of the cases, they didn't even have to, pick up a, uh, they didn't have to pick up a sword. They didn't have to pick up anything. All they had to do was go and take the land. God scared the people out of their own country. God is the one doing the fighting. It is not a physical fight. It is a spiritual fight. And it is a faith fight that we have to keep fighting. Ephesians chapter, two, uh, chapter 6, verse 2 says this, For we are not fighting against flesh, and blood enemies, but against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Your fight isn't against your neighbor who doesn't want to keep his yard nice and plays his music late at night. Your fight isn't against the guy across the street who always parks his car in front of your house. Those things never happen in my house, by the way. Your fight isn't with your co-workers. It is a spiritual fight. Yeah, maybe they are the face of the enemy. It's the, the, they, the, they, the enemy uses their face, but it's not a spiritual fight. I mean, it's, it's a spiritual fight, not a physical fight. So we have to realize that when we... When we want to live as Jesus is king, following the words of God, it is not going to be by our own strength, our own determination, or our own wits. It's going to be by the power of God living in us. Because it's a spiritual fight. It's interesting, if you read after uh, the rest of Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about the armor of God. And I don't want, that's a whole other series right there. So I won't go into that, but I want, to, I, want to, I want to bring your attention to two things. One, it talks about the shield of faith. What is a shield? Shield, for the most part, is a defensive, it's not a weapon, it is a defensive item. It's an item used, your, your faith is what protects you, your faith in God. The other thing it talks about is it talks about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay? Your faith was never meant, your faith, your faith was never meant to be a weapon. God's word is the weapon. Your faith was established to protect you. Now, you see those movies where people take their, their shields and they block it up and they use it, and then they take it and they use it as a weapon. Listen, I, I don't know about all that. But I do know this. If we try to convert somebody with our faith, it'll end in failure. But we try to do the same thing with God's word, it'll be amazing, amazing of the outcome. Why is that? Because Hebrews 4, chapter 12 tells us, The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between spirit, soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. 
It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Listen, God's word has power that we can have access to, but has power beyond our understanding. When used in the right way at the right time, God's word can do more than the biggest army ever to cross the earth. Keeping that, having this Jesus following his word day by day, making him the focus of our life, it's going to be the hardest thing we do because there are going to be distractions. There are going to be things that pull us to the left and pull us to the right. There are going to be things that they bring us down. There will be things that lift us up. Things that, listen, Satan's biggest, biggest goal isn't for you to all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, deny Jesus. What he wants to do with you is he wants to distract you. Because if he can distract you a little bit, he can distract you a little bit more. And he can distract you a little bit more. And he can distract you a little bit more. And then next thing you know, that little distraction becomes your focus. And then God becomes the distraction. We have to remember and be careful. That Jesus is the king. We need to follow in the footsteps of the king. We need to walk in the path of the king. But we can only do that when we keep our eyes on the king. I know that we're in a difficult time with um, being out and about and doing our own thing and, you know, we all can't just get up and just go to a restaurant right now, unfortunately, because they probably wouldn't let us all in in one place because we'd reach the maximum. I think you got a 50, uh, 50% max of the seating capacity. Um, it's a difficult time. We can't just travel wherever we want, whenever we want. We can't go visit people. Um, some people seem mean and rude. But it doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be a burden. If we will, will refocus our lives back to Jesus as King, realign our thoughts and our attitudes on God's Word, He will, he, he, I don't know how he does it, but he allows these distractions to no longer be a burden on us. They no longer take control of our lives. So where do we start? We know it's a spiritual fight. We know that God's word is, is alive and powerful. How do we start in, implementing? How can we start keeping Jesus in the forefront of our thoughts and our, our lives in a difficult world that we live in. 
well, if I had the, if I had the 10-step program, I would give it to you. Say, here, follow this 10-step program, and this will lead you how to do that. I don't have that. But I do have some, something that can help you start your journey. Listen, ultimately, what works for one person isn't necessarily going to work for everybody else. Okay? But there are some things that you can do, you can start doing if you haven't, or continue doing if you've been already doing, that will help you keep Jesus as the forefront focus of your life. The first thing is find out what God's Word says. Find out what God's Word says. You will never, never live according to God's Word if you don't know what it says. So start, start reading God's Word. Start digging into it. And don't just, okay, oh man, I got to read God's Word. Um, in the beginning, God created, created the heavens and the earth. And We've all been there. Okay, here's what I suggest. Get a notepad. Get a pencil. Get a Bible. Okay? Start reading. And, and for me, again, everybody's different, but for me, for me to really understand, I have to read not a whole chapter. I have to read a passage, and then I have to reread it a little slower to try and really understand what's being said there. And then if I have questions, I'll write it down. If I have thoughts, I write it down. That is getting God's Word into your life. Just, just sitting there reading it doesn't mean it's getting into you. Because if you're like me, sometimes it goes in here and comes out here. Now, reading God's Word does not make you a Christian. Reading God's Word does not mean you're saved. Reading God's Word edifies your salvation and your relationship with God. It doesn't define your relationship with God. Understand that. Second, second thing you can do is make a date with God. Make a date with Jesus. One of the things that, that I, I, when I talk to, to couples, I, I tell them, you need to have at least probably about once a week, no less than, than once every two weeks, you need to have a date night. And you know what everybody says? You're absolutely right. We need to do that. And I, the next time I meet them, I say, so did you do that? Oh, no, we didn't have, we didn't, we didn't, I'm sorry. I, I, we don't know what happened. I know what happened. You didn't make a date night. You just said you were going to do it. Pick a day, Friday. Pick a time, 7 o'clock. Okay, Friday at 7 o'clock, we're finding somewhere to do with the kids. We're going to go, and we're going to, we're going to go out on a date. We're just going to spend time together, just the two of us. Spending time with Tim Pond, Jesus shouldn't be that difficult. But some people, some people have a hard time doing it. That's why I say, set a time. Maybe you're a morning person and you, and you get up early, 6.15 to 6.30. I'm just going to sit and I'm just going to talk with God. Or maybe you're a night owl and, and, and it's like 10.30 to 10.45 or, or, or to 11 o'clock. You're just going to sit and you're just going to talk with God. You don't necessarily have to have an agenda, but you can. 
You see, again, talking with God doesn't, doesn't define your relationship with him. Just because you talk to God more than somebody else doesn't mean you're holier than that person. What it does is it edifies your relationship with Jesus. Set a date. Set a time. In fact, set a time every day. Make it a, a normal part of your life. And, and the last thing, and this is, this is difficult for some people. This is difficult for some people. Think, think about what God wants you to do. Think about what God wants you to do. And then do it. Now, there's, there's, a big, there's a big issue here. Because to be able to think about what God wants you to do and then do it, you have to do, be doing the first two. You have to be talking with God on a regular basis. You have to be into his word. These things, these things will help you. They'll help remove the distractions, and they'll help you focus on Jesus. They'll help you surrender your life to the king. They'll help you be who God wants you to be. But it's not going to be easy. There's a reason that, that many of the uh, Ephesians 6, many of them say that we're in a spiritual warfare. We are in war. It's not just a little old battle. We are actually in war with Satan, his demons, and everybody he's misled. So it's not going to be easy. But I will tell you this. God will bless you, and he will meet every need that you have, every concern. He will reveal himself to you in an amazing way if you're willing to persevere, if you're willing to stand strong, if you're willing to walk in the path that he is directing. So, now we can close in prayer. Let me encourage you in one final thought, and that is this. <clears throat> For God, failure is not trying. For God, failure is not trying. If you are trying and, and you are earnestly seeking and you, you say, I'm going to get up and I'm going to pray and I'm going to read my Bible. And you spend two minutes praying and three minutes reading your Bible. And, and all of a sudden it got away from you. That's a starting point. Okay? That is a starting point. Don't get bogged down by, oh, this is too much. I can't do it. Baby steps. Baby steps. And then you will, you will see as you... Start doing these things. Those two-minute prayers will get into four-minute prayers, into eight-minute prayers. Next thing you know, 30 minutes has gone by, and you that, that couple of minutes of reading God's Word, 
turns into not only reading God's word, but realizing some things in scripture you never realized before, writing things down. Don't get discouraged. Baby steps. And let's see where God takes us. Stand with me as we pray. Your word, Father, tells us that we have gone astray. We've all gone astray. Lord, but you are gracious enough to provide a way back. We thank you for that. Lord, give us a renewed passion to serve you as king. Give us a renewed passion to eagerly anticipate the things you have for us. To avoid the distractions that may present themselves in our lives. But to keep our focus on you. I pray for everybody who's in this building. Or maybe those who are are watching online that you would just reach into their lives, you would give them, Lord God, the determination to walk in those steps. And as they continue walking, the strides get longer and longer. As they approach, as they, as they draw close to you. I pray for this country as we're going through a difficult time that you would You would give wisdom to our leaders. Lord God, you would give us wisdom in making the right decisions. But Lord, first and foremost, let everything we do and everything we say bring glory and honor to you as we faithfully walk step by step in the path that you lay out for us. We thank you and we ask this in your name. Amen. I tell you, it's great speaking to actual people again. Thank you. Love you guys. Um, just wanted to remind you that Wednesdays, I know in the video I said that we were going to have children's services on Wednesday. There will not be children's activities on Wednesdays. We are still going to have the adult Bible study, but there will not be children's activities on Wednesday. We're still going to play it a little cautious there. And so um, if you're an adult, Come join me. Um, otherwise, you can watch online. Mike and, Mike and Debbie will have something for the kids online on Facebook. Love you guys. See you later.